This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Work can be a hazardous place for people who prepare the nation's beef, pork, and poultry. And according to a recent series of reports, there's little in the form of punishment for companies that violate safety rules. Luke Runyon is with Harvest Public Media, which did the series. He focused on the Greeley meatpacking plant JBS and a worker named Ralph Horner. Back in 2014, uh, Ralph was working the overnight shift. He was a maintenance worker, and his hair and clothing got caught in a conveyor belt that he was working on. He ended up suffocating to death. Um, And after that incident, federal safety regulators with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration went into the plant. They did an inspection and ended up kind of scolding the meat packer for not having proper guards on the piece of machinery that Mr. Horner was working on. But the thing that kind of piqued my interest about the story was that the final fines for the violations that led to his death totaled $38,500. And that's a fine that was handed over to a huge corporation that makes hundreds of millions of dollars in profit every year. Um, So I wanted to follow up on the story, see exactly what motivates a meatpacking company, a place that has a kind of a dangerous workplace, to make its plants safe and to find out who's holding who accountable in that situation. So how common is it for a meatpacking worker like Ralph Horner to be killed or injured on the job? The industry as a whole since 2003 has had about 150 workplace fatalities, which is not the most dangerous industry. Construction and other kind of on-farm jobs are more dangerous. But the meatpacking industry has has a high rate, you know, and it's higher than most other manufacturing jobs if you're looking at injuries. And if you're looking at a plant like the one in Greeley, like ones across the Midwest and the Great Plains, There are workers who are experiencing amputations, so losing fingers, losing hands. Um, You have workers who are experiencing lacerations, so they're using a lot of sharp knives and saws, and that can cause some problems. You're also looking at uh, injuries from chemicals, burns or suffocations. Um, So it kind of spans a huge range of, of what's possible in these particular workplaces. And when a death or injury occurs, is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration or OSHA involved in the investigation? If there's a fatality, OSHA is involved immediately after. So if a worker dies in a meatpacking plant, OSHA gets called in to do an inspection for that particular incident. And if there were violations of workplace safety standards that were contributing to that worker death, then in some cases OSHA will levy some fines. If there's just an accident or um, somebody gets sent to the hospital from an accident, it's not necessarily the case that OSHA goes in and um, will do an inspection after that. The company now has to report, but OSHA might not necessarily, their involvement might, might not get triggered in that case. You mentioned that the, the fine in this case that you uh, you covered was around $38,000. How much are fines typically for deaths like this? That was actually higher than most. So if you're looking at a case where a worker is injured or killed, we found on average safety violation fines are just under $20,000 
per case. And in a lot of cases, it gets lowered down even further. Um, OSHA and a company will sit down and usually go through some sort of settlement process to pay that fine. And in a lot of cases, it gets settled down to an even lower fine. In that case, the company would come forward and say, you know, well, we don't think OSHA knows what they're talking about when it comes to a lot of these violations. We don't think that they're accurate. And so we're going to challenge them. And then that gets sent through this OSHA settlement process. Lawyers from the government, lawyers from the company will sit down and and kind of suss out which violations are going to stick. And that's how those fines start out at a higher amount and then end up at a lower amount. And critics see these fines as much too low. Uh, Luke, how does OSHA calculate them? Yeah, critics do think that they're too low. I talked to a former OSHA official who said that they're embarrassingly low. And one of the reasons behind that is because OSHA is a federal agency that cannot set its own fine amounts. So all of the fines that OSHA can levy are set by Congress. And back in 1990, there was a big update that was done to how federal agencies could assess fines. OSHA was not allowed to track its fines to the rate of inflation. So really, we're looking at fine amounts that really haven't been changed in about 25 years. That's going to change in August. Um, OSHA was given the ability to uh, raise some of their fines, but they're still going to be incredibly low compared to a lot of other fine amounts from uh, federal agencies. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and I'm speaking with Luke Runyon, a reporter with Harvest Public Media based out of KUNC in Greeley, Colorado. Luke, I understand JBS had been working to minimize injuries and deaths at their plants when Ralph Horner was killed in 2014. Did those efforts just simply fail? 2014 was a really bad year for JBS, and they readily admitted that in the course of this reporting. In the a five-month span in 2014, JBS and its affiliated companies had four worker fatalities, including Ralph Horner. And they admit it was a it was a blind spot. In this case, they said, you know, the piece of equipment that he was working on was in a piece of the plant that not very many people went to. Basically, they just didn't notice it. You report that JBS had functioned under a cardinal rule policy, and that's where a list of rules guided employees about what to do to stay safe on the job. But if they broke a rule, they were fired. There was zero tolerance. What effect did that have? That was one of the changes that they made directly in response to that five-month span in 2014 when you had four worker deaths. And this cardinal rule policy was meant to... Um, to kind of weed out the bad actors, the people who did not want to be safe on the job and were flouting company policy, and so they would be fired. What the company realized was that if you are telling your employees that if you report one of your coworkers for doing something unsafe, that they'll be fired, that leads to a terrible culture where nobody talks about safety. Nobody wants to report their coworker knowing that they're going to get fired or report their own uh, unsafe behavior. And it really leads to kind of a chilling effect throughout the entire organization and ultimately with a less safe environment when the intent was to create a really safe environment. So what is the company doing now? Is it a whole new atmosphere there since these deaths? I think there's definitely more of a focus on safety. I think what 
what JBS should maybe receive a couple kudos for is just the willingness to sit down and talk about these things with someone outside of the organization. I think meatpacking in general is a pretty insular industry. They don't necessarily reach out to media very often. They aren't necessarily throwing up, throwing out the barn doors of the meatpacking plant saying, come on in. But in this case, they realized that they had problems and they were willing to sit down and talk about them. And they have said that they're working with a third party um, risk management agency to come in and uh, do some updates to their safety policies. So I think that they're they're taking steps, but really what it comes down to is that the culture of the plant, which is a it's a slow burn to try and change the culture of any place, let alone a meatpacking plant. And aside from JBS, what has the response been industry wide to your reporting and other reporting done by Harvest Public Media? In the course of doing this reporting, we reached out to several meatpacking companies, and JBS was really the only one that said, sure, come on over and sit down for a recorded interview. We talked to a few others who did not want to participate, and even though they've been flouting their safety, new safety programs, decided that they didn't want to speak with the media about them. Um I think the response has mostly been positive, especially from worker advocacy groups. And they said, yeah, this is an invisible population. People who work in meatpacking plants don't necessarily get attention when, you know, you have situations where workers are dying or, or having their fingers amputated. And this is a, a great way to shine a light on a population that doesn't necessarily get the attention that it deserves. But these jobs are inherently dangerous. Uh, is it just that there aren't a lot of other jobs that pay as much? Uh, what's keeping workers from leaving? I actually heard that a lot in the course of doing this reporting. You know, why don't these people get new jobs if it's too tough or too dangerous? And I think that that's really easier said than done. Um, you know, put yourself in a worker's shoes. These jobs, they pay fairly well, better than most blue-collar jobs. And the workers in these plants take the danger with the higher pay. So what's keeping companies like JBS from doing more to protect their workers? I think what's behind it is we as consumers demand cheap meat. And that means that the interior of a meatpacking facility runs fast and furious. The chain is what drives the meatpacking floor. It's the heartbeat of any meatpacking plant. You have these carcasses moving through, people with knives, people with saws. It's an inherently dangerous place. And so I think what keeps the company from really going full force into safety is that they have this other demand. They have this hungry consumer on one end who's saying, I want cheap beef, I want cheap chicken, pork. And the way that you do that is by increasing production, increasing the pace of the line. And in some cases, that pace, that machinery is what causes safety problems. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Luke Runyon is a reporter for Harvest Public Media, a reporting collaborative of public radio stations around the Midwest. He's based at KUNC in Greeley. Find a link to his story at cprnews.org. Still to come, traumatic brain injuries in athletes are promoting some to donate their brains to science. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. You may have noticed that when a kid gets a concussion playing sports these days, it's handled differently from a few years ago. Heightened media attention and new rules have raised awareness. But as CPR health reporter John Daly explains, there's still a lot that's not known. 14-year-old Maddie Provost is glad to be back on the soccer field. On this day, she's doing something she hadn't been able to do for months, playing midfield for Real Silver, her club team in Highlands Ranch. Well, I've had three concussions so far. Over a few months last year, she bonked her head on a gym floor, had a ball kicked at her head, and hit her head on the ground mountain biking. The resulting concussion on all three occasions caused symptoms like light sensitivity and headaches. It kind of affected me in a really big way because I just wasn't myself for a pretty long time. After the last concussion, her doctor advised Maddie sit out for six months. No soccer, no contact sports at all. Definitely has been very challenging. Her father, Gary, agreed with this careful approach. I think we made the right decision for Maddie, and she seems to be doing well now. So uh, fortunately, and hopefully that'll continue. I think they're a great example of how we would like the process to work. That's Julie Wilson, Maddie's doctor, a pediatric sports medicine physician. If we could get everybody to be that way... That would be great. Wilson says at all levels, from players to parents to coaches, awareness of the risks of concussions seems to be steadily growing. It's a big change from the days when she played college soccer more than a decade ago and injured a toe. Great example I think about a lot. My senior year, my roommate and I got injured in the same game. She got a concussion, and I dislocated one of my toes. And she was back on the field before I was. Several things are driving the changes in attitude. There's been a blitz of media coverage about pro athletes struggling with concussions. There have also been some major changes in how high schools handle the injury. Rules around the country now restrict high school athletes from returning to play after a suspected concussion until they've been evaluated, treated, and cleared by a qualified medical professional. Concussion is a serious injury. Dominic DeManna is the president of the Colorado Athletic Trainers Association. It needs to be taken seriously. There are certain steps that we need to do to evaluate and treat these injuries. DeManna says the relatively new rules have raised awareness and sent a message. Occasionally, he says, there's pushback from kids who want to play through the injury, and sometimes parents. To get that kid going, because obviously everybody's concerned about the loss of a scholarship or a student not being seen by this competitive club or that competitive club. The concussion clinic at Children's Hospital Colorado reports an increase in patient visits since the more strict concussion rules went into effect in this state in 2012. Pediatric neuropsychologist Mike Kirkwood co-directs the hospital's concussion program. Most kids recover well after concussion and relatively quickly. He says the newfound awareness to this type of brain injury is good, but he says you have to put it in perspective. More kids die from lightning strikes than sport-related head trauma in any given year. Given those stats, he worries the pendulum may have swung too far. We don't want parents panicking when their kids have been diagnosed with concussion. And certainly we don't want parents panicking every time their kids bump their heads. Sarah Fields is an associate professor at CU Denver. She helped create a national database on concussions in high school athletes. She says even though research in the field has taken off in recent years... There's still so much we don't know about concussions. How many concussions is too many? 
What's the risk of accumulated smaller hits to the head from, say, heading a soccer ball? And perhaps the biggest challenge? How to reliably diagnose concussions in the first place. Fields points out that as many as 80% of American kids take part in organized sport before high school. But there's no national surveillance system tracking concussions for elementary and middle school students. We should probably be paying attention to what's happening to them. Children's Hospital Colorado will take a first shot at that this fall. Its concussion program is starting a new study to track concussions in 1,700 soccer players of all ages in one of the state's competitive youth clubs. Back at the soccer field, Maddie Provost's dad, Gary, says with research still in its infancy. You're constantly in this trying to figure out what the right, the right information is, what the best information is, and it's not easy. Maddie says she might even consider giving up soccer altogether if she has another bad concussion. She and her dad are hoping she never has to find out. I'm John Daly, CPR News. To advance research on concussions and traumatic brain injuries, athletes are agreeing to donate their brains to science when they die, like former Denver Bronco Larry Kaminsky. Other ex-Broncos like the late Rob Lytle and Cookie Gilchrist have already made the donation. One of the researchers who benefits from these kinds of gifts is Dr. Jennifer Hammers, a medical examiner in New York and a board member of the Brain Injury Research Institute in Pittsburgh. Dr. Hammers, welcome. Dr. Hammers? Thanks so much for having me. Ah, Thanks for being here. Most of the attention, doctor, regarding brain injuries in recent years has focused on chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE as it's commonly known. The degenerative disease has been responsible for the deaths of a number of famous athletes. One of the first discovered cases was former Pittsburgh Steelers center Mike Webster. His story was told in the recent film Concussion, and the protagonist in the film was Dr. Bennett Omalu, one of the founders of the Brain Injury Research Institute. Doctor, how did this disease turn from a seemingly isolated case into a societal concern? Well, Nathan, I think that um, concussions are something that has have been known about and looked into for some time. But it was through the discovery of uh, CTE in Mike Webster uh, when Dr. Bennett Omalu uh, decided to study his brain Uh, because the findings he saw at autopsy didn't really make sense with his behavioral changes. So it it was through his training and expertise that he recognized something didn't quite add up and moved forward with his investigation and led to uh, CTE that we know of today uh, and the, the examination and research that's gone into it. And you're joining us from New York. I want to note that we're using technology that there's a bit of a delay. So uh, bear with us as we work to fix that out. Doctor, does the celebrity that accompanies a Hollywood production like Concussion help or hurt the science and the research that still needs to be done on this uh, this disease? So uh, I think that from an overall perspective, it definitely helps. It brings an awareness to the general population about the importance of concussions and the need to recognize them, try to prevent them, and even treat them. Uh, It allows people to be uh, more uh, cognizant of of the risk uh, and make a more informed decision. Uh, However, I think that anytime somebody is thinking about uh, donating tissue of any kind for research, uh, and in this this case, uh, brain tissue, Uh, People have very strong connections, uh, both uh, after death but also before death, 
to the idea of giving a donation of a part of their body. And so I think that the, the celebrity surrounding this doesn't always affect that side of it. Uh, people are more aware of it, but doesn't make them also doesn't always make them more willing to uh, participate in the donation. I see. When Dr. Amalo initially presented a paper on CTE to the NFL, they tried to get it withdrawn, and that didn't happen. But even with the discoveries being made, there are some who would argue that the pendulum has maybe swung a little too far, especially when it comes to some of the rule changes in professional football designed to reduce the violent collisions that take place on the field. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the thing to remember is that we don't have the whole story regarding concussions and their effect. And everybody is affected differently by concussions. We do know that concussions are dangerous and that we don't know how each individual person is going to respond. So while we can, you know, look at concussions and recognize a need to be cautious, it's very uh, difficult to make blanket statements about what we should and shouldn't do. What we should do is continue to advance the science, continue to expand our knowledge, and continue to research these cases uh, and give uh, the, the general population as much information as we can so that they can make as informed of a decision as they can with the research and information that we have at this time. And with that being said, and maybe parents who have young children that that they don't want playing football, do you see maybe in 10, 20, or 50 years that there may not be American football being played anymore? Well, it's interesting you asked that question. Uh, You know, many of us are uh, very, uh, very big fans of American football, as am I being from Pittsburgh uh, myself. Um, And you know, I think we don't, none of us really know what's going to happen with the, with the long-term effects of parents' decisions in letting their, their children play professional athletes. Uh, I think that people are going to continue to love the game of football. There are going to be people who will want to play. Uh, and most importantly, they'll be playing with the uh, informed knowledge of what we know right now. And they may be making decisions down the line to stop playing earlier, uh, to shorten their careers, or to even play in a more safe way. I think only time will tell, but I think that Americans are going to continue to to love American football, and it's likely to be around in some form, uh, maybe not exactly as it is today, uh, but in some form going forward. You're listening to Colorado Matters on CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm talking with Dr. Jennifer Hammers about traumatic brain injuries in athletes. And, and like you've been saying, we're seeing a number of athletes, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Brandy Chaston, locally in Colorado, some former members of the Denver Broncos making the decision to donate their brains to science after their death. Others have made the decision to walk away from football, like you said, some like San Francisco's 49ers linebacker Chris Borland in the prime of their career. So what should we make of those decisions? Well, I think that we should look at those decisions and be proud of the science and proud of the work that we've done. We've gone from uh, a culture where uh, the general population looked at concussions and and thought, you know, uh, as long as you sort of go back to normal, you feel okay, or you can push through, uh, that's the right thing to do, to recognizing and 
accepting that we need to uh, look out for our individual selves and our individual health uh, and, you know, protect uh, particularly our brain, which is such a vital structure after uh, we're done playing uh, sports or, or being in the military. And this is something that, uh, you know, these changes to the brain affect some, a, a majority of somebody's life after they finish with their, with their career in professional or even college athletics. Are the number of athletes coming forward to uh, and choosing to donate their brains to science, is that enough for adequate research? Well, I think in science, the more uh, tissue you can examine, the better. So, you know, the ideal would be to have every person who played uh, some type of sport uh, come forward and be willing to allow us to perform the research and examine the tissues after they pass away. But we know that that's not going to happen. Mm. What's important is to have a... Uh, a diverse population to study different types of sports, different ages of athletes, different lengths of time, different positions, and different numbers of uh, both documented and perhaps even undocumented concussion or mild traumatic brain injuries. Uh, this will give us the most uh, broad knowledge that we can have and allow us to start piecing together if there are certain risks associated with certain types of sports or certain types of positions. I think that that is uh, the more important thing is to have a more diverse study population to be able to then draw more conclusions. So are you saying that there is not at this time enough diversity in, in these donated brains, is, 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 for lack of a better word? <laughs> <laughs> well, many of the of the donated brains to this point have been from professional football players. There have been a few college and high school uh, football players that have been examined, and you know, a handful of you know uh, boxing or mixed uh, martial mixed martial arts uh, athletes, and um, diversifying into you know areas uh, like soccer. Uh, and other sports where people may have relatively few concussions, but still may suffer serious side, side effects of the concussions that they do suffer. Um, so I think that right now we're doing a really good job of looking at, uh, looking at uh, football players, and that's definitely a very important population to look at. But even within football, identifying which positions athletes played how many games they played, how many impacts they may have had over their career is a very important factor. Now, former Denver Broncos Jake Plummer and Nate Jackson have been strong advocates of using marijuana to help with the pain they suffered during their careers. Is there work being done with pot and brain trauma? You know, Nathan, I'm not aware personally of any specific research uh, related to the use of marijuana uh, and concussions, although it wouldn't surprise me if somebody is doing that research, and I think it would be very interesting research to learn about uh, and to see what they find uh, in that research. And when a, a former athlete is suffering, there's this tendency to immediately subscribe it to CTE. How careful do we have to be about possible knee-jerk reactions to things like that? I think we have to be very careful. I think the thing to remember is 
uh, that everybody has their own life situations, which may play into uh, some of the events that we see transpire with people's lives. There are people who can have, independent of CTE, substance abuse issues or family issues. Um, and, you know, CTE may very well play a role in some of this. But we have to be very careful just having a knee-jerk reaction to blame everything on CTE. I don't think the science has advanced enough to make that direct correlation. What I would say, though, is we have found in the population that we've studied that these are things that we very often are seeing in people who also do have evidence of CTE. So what's on the horizon? Uh, CTE right now can only be discovered during a pathology examination after death, but you say work is being done to change that. That is true. So it's very important that we continue to do the pathologic exams after people pass away. But there's also work being done um, in the living to try to identify uh, features through testing that are consistent with uh, CTE that we're identifying after death. Uh, there's a very interesting uh, couple of papers that have been published um, out of a UCLA uh, group with Dr. Gary Small. Uh, they're looking at a, um, a protein that can bind to uh, these are these uh, substances in the brain and they highlight on a PET scan, uh, which is a scan that looks at the brain. Uh, and what they're finding in this population is that these former uh, athletes have binding in the same areas that have been identified after death in the pathology studies. This is really exciting because this is allowing us to look at uh, athletes and use this scan while they're alive, that's very non-invasive, and start to make some correlations. While we can't definitively diagnose CTE while they're alive, we can look and say what we're seeing is in the same location, and it's different from other disease processes that we know about. Doctor, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Nathan. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Jennifer Hammers, a medical examiner in New York City and a member of the board of the Brain Injury Research Institute, uh, joined us. Just ahead, Donald Trump is in Denver this morning for the Western Conservative Summit. We'll hear the evolution of one of his supporters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Donald Trump is in Colorado for his first official campaign visit to the state. He is here to address the Western Conservative Summit. Many see this as an olive branch to the conservative wing of the party. But at least one person in the audience won't need to be won over. CPR's Megan Verlee has another in an occasional series on people engaged in this year's presidential election. Today, the evolution of a Trump supporter. 28-year-old Aaron Barron's doesn't just like Trump. She likes Trump so much that earlier this year, when she felt his supporters had been unfairly cut out of Colorado's RNC delegate selection process, she organized a raucous protest at the state capitol. Because we were disenfranchised, and we deserve to vote. Barron's is all in for Trump now. But when we sat down to talk, I was surprised to hear that she was initially nervous to tell friends about her choice. Okay, so as like a coming out process, I had like a little speech and like I sat down with them and I was like, I have to tell you something. Just listen all the way through. Like, I'm totally serious. I like Trump. (laughs) 
Barron's doesn't fit the typical Trump demographic. She's not older, she's not blue-collar, and she's not male. Barron's is a stay-at-home mom with three kids who's always been a Republican, but she's disillusioned with the party. She kind of made a face when I called her a Republican. The Republicans, they don't represent me, and they haven't for so long that I don't, why would I call myself a Republican? Like, I, I do, because there's not really any other word. Um, but I don't like them. <laughs> she doesn't like what she calls the unholy alliance between social conservatives, of which she's one, and big business, which she thinks is destroying the middle class. Barron's is very religious and strongly anti-abortion, but those just aren't the issues she's voting on this year. There is so much at stake that I social issues are like arguing about the drapes on the Titanic while it's sinking. Let's save our country and save Western civilization, and then we can argue about social issues all we want. What has Barron so worried for Western civilization? Well, it really started in January. I saw stuff coming out of Europe with the refugee crisis. Um, a lot of that stuff is pretty terrifying. Barron's was especially upset by news of widespread attacks on women in Germany during New Year's Eve festivities, allegedly by men of North African and Arab descent. Her fears made her see the presidential election in a new light. I did a total 180 from Donald Trump. You know, he's so vulgar. He's so rude. Everything he says is so mean to, oh, wow, like, this is really serious. Maybe we should have this like guy who is strong and will take control of the situation and correct our path. The refugee crisis is only the most recent symptom of what Barron sees as a larger national ailment. With the economy, with immigration, with culture, she fears national borders are dissolving. It's a concern Trump has built his campaign around, from celebrating the British Brexit vote to talking about the American economy. This wave of globalization has wiped out totally totally our middle class. It doesn't have to be this way. Barron's knows full well the words some people attach to views like Trump's and to hers. Racist, sexist, bigoted, homophobic, Islamophobic. I hear them constantly. They don't mean anything anymore. (laughs) They mean nothing. (laughs) Those are some pretty strong terms to just laugh off. The reason why they don't mean anything anymore is because when I ask why am I a racist? There is no answer. It's just, I don't agree with you politically. Therefore, you're a racist. Okay, let me take care of them. That was one of Barron's little boys banging on the patio door. She'd sent them outside to play while we talked. When we continued, Barron said all the negative reactions just make her like being a Trump supporter even more. It's being a rebel against the media and the establishment, and your friends and family. And that's kind of (laughs) cool. Trump's candidacy has been full of surprises. Perhaps the biggest one for Barron's is that he's made her excited to be a Republican again. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. We'll bring you more stories like this throughout the election, profiling passionate individuals engaged in the campaigns. If you know someone who has a good story to tell, visit the CPR News Facebook page and leave a comment on this story. Just ahead, around 7,000 singers are converging on Denver this weekend, and they're being welcomed with a choral performance in a very, well, it's a very unique place. Stay tuned. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 
If you walk through the Denver Performing Arts Complex tomorrow night, it's going to be hard to miss the massive choir. Hundreds of Colorado singers will open the International Gala Festival and premiere music created specifically for the occasion. The piece is called Mountains and Rivers, composed by Denver's Nathan Hall, and the choir won't perform from a stage. Producer Stephanie Wolf went to rehearsal earlier this month. Composer Nathan Hall stands on a balcony of the complex's Buell Theater. So this is where I'll be conducting from. And then we have all the choir members on these four levels. He points across the Galleria, where more than 400 singers line multiple balconies of the center's eight-story parking garage. An organizer addresses them on a loudspeaker. So, obviously, there's a bit of reverb in here. The top, the top uh, number seven level, can you understand me? Okay, great. Six, five, and four. As many as 7,000 singers will converge on Denver for the International Festival. And Gala Choruses, a global association of LGBTQ choral groups, commissioned Hall to create mountains and rivers for the festival's opening ceremonies. They wanted a piece that was a tribute to Colorado, something that could welcome all these other guests from around the country to Denver. As the title suggests, Hall drew inspiration from the Colorado landscape. He says positioning singers along the tiered parking garage captures this imagery visually and sonically. Can I have everyone give me just a... There's kind of a shimmering effect. We can have people sing in a wave formation, so they start on the left-hand side, and you can hear their voices move spatially across the parking garage. Hall also incorporates trumpets and handbells... And sometimes, there's unplanned accompaniment. Beth Winsky sings with the Denver Women's Chorus in Harmony, a Colorado chorale. She's one of the 437 singers and says the cascading effect of the music has had an emotional impact on her. It's just kind of one of those epic artistic moments, you know, where you get to be with your friends from all these different choruses and deliver an opening ceremony to people around the world. I mean, how cool, how much cooler can they get? The music draws people into the space. They pause. And with their cell phones, they take photos and videos of the multi-tiered chorus. That was Colorado Matters producer Stephanie Wolf. She went to rehearsal of Mountains and Rivers last month. We're joined now by its composer, Nathan Hall. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. As we heard, composing for hundreds of singers in a parking garage, it's, it's pretty, pretty ambitious. Were you a little surprised that you got the green light to actually do this? <laughs> well, the choir directors wanted a piece in the Galleria, mm. so something that used that grand space in an unconventional way. And I'd done a few kind of spatial pieces before mm-hmm. and installation work, so they at least had a vote of confidence for my work. But I wasn't quite sure what the actual effect would be once we got all the people together. So were there other places in the Galleria you wanted to try? Or was it always that parking garage? We had thought about maybe staging something um, like a John Cage-esque performance, like a pop-up um, event where 
things would happen down on the ground level that you might not expect, like brass bands or trumpets or streamers and things like that. But then I realized it's really about lifting people up so that you can see everyone from the ground to be a better vantage point. And, and looking up at these singers. Exactly. Uh, there have been complaints about the acoustics at Betcher, uh, but, but how are they outside in the Galleria? It's kind of amazing. I've been in actual concert halls where the acoustics aren't as good as inside this parking garage. Really? The words from the text come out surprisingly well. People could end up seeing me quite well, even though I'm standing from a balcony on the other side. Um, I was really pleasantly surprised. And, and while you're a composer, you're you're not a conductor. Uh, working with such a large choir has got to be challenging enough, but you're also working with such a huge space. What did you do to kind of make all that work? Well, I drew upon a very short year I had of conducting classes in mm. grad school and tried to remember what it was like to be a singer who has all these different skill levels, too. You, Some people might not read music all that well. Some people might be super proficient in oh, the experimental techniques. Yeah, oh. the performers. So I tried to draw on conducting techniques that worked for a variety of people. Sometimes it's just a really easy hand gesture like a thumbs up or a, a number of what level we'll be starting to sing. And then other times you have normal conducting patterns like 3-4 or 4-4 that you might see in a symphony. And so is is the, the, the piece of music that these performers have, is, does it look like a normal piece of music or it has some special notes because you're in such a unique place? It's kind of a hybrid score. There's some things in it that look like normal music notation, notes and staffs and um, chords and things. And then there's also other things like text directions that have people instructed as to what to do, like sing this note for one breath worth or... When you get to this point, turn over a scarf that you're wearing, which will reverse to another color on the other side. So there's also a visual and kind of performance aspect. And so besides that, that, that visual aspect, which you see with these scarves, I want to talk about uh, how you source the text for this composition. Um, but will you read uh, me some of it first? Sure. Huddle on the edge of horizons, waiting for the rain to break and be beautiful. It's the mountains, it's the rivers, it's the valleys and the plains. It's the summer and the snowfall and the rain. Monumental Colorado. Brighter than sapphire, bluer than cornflower, a blue so true it is almost music. Mountains and rivers unending. I understand that text comes from a variety of people and places, including a number of poets. Where does the line huddle on the edge of horizons come from? That's a line from a Colorado poet, Brian Dixon. Hmm. Um, he wrote a piece about the bighorn sheep, believe it or not, in Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, and it was an image of all these sheep standing on a precipice, sort of looking outward. But I took that one line from his poem and I thought it's a great effect that reminds me of when I'm up in the mountains or taking a drive and you stop on this little overlook and you feel like you could fall off, but it's this amazing vista. So it's worth the risk. What about uh, it's the mountains, it's the rivers? Where did that, that line come from? That line is actually from James Knapp, who's mm -hmm. the director of the Colorado Gay Men's Chorus. We were having lunch one day and he told me some of the things he loves about Colorado. And he literally said that line and I wrote it down without him knowing and then asked him for permission later if I was <laughs> if that was okay. I used it, and, and and it's kind of a mishmash, but it all comes together to form form the song, a poetry itself. 
Yeah, I wanted kind of a collage of text, just as there's so many different voices and so many different perspectives about how we think about Colorado and its landscape, that this is like a collage of different poets and all their ideas about Colorado. And like you said earlier, there's an element of spectacle to this performance. And you have more than 400 singers lining multiple levels of this parking garage, singing about Colorado's grand landscapes. You've done site-specific and avant-garde works in the past, though nothing on this scale. Do you find that you're drawn to this kind of grand display or pageantry as an artist? I think I love the spectacle of it. I'd rather be a little more behind the scenes of things where I let people direct the show and I just give them the music and kind of give them tips. But I want my music to really evoke what I feel inside. So I think when I get these grand plans, it really, um, it's a more full feeling of um, my views of the state or landscapes or emotions. You don't think it's just simply spectacle? Well, I love a good spectacle, too. I mean, throw some streamers in there, you know, some hand motions and things. It's going to be a good show. Can can that ever, though, uh, distract from the music? I try to really balance it so that the visual aspects never overwhelm the musical aspects. So that's always kind of parts of this complete whole. Mountains and Rivers is intended as a celebratory piece that that welcomes thousands of LGBTQ choral singers from around the world. Has the work taken on any new significance or or maybe greater resonance uh, for you in the wake of the shooting at a gay Orlando nightclub? Well, certainly as a gay composer myself, the work is really meaningful that I'm able to give this to all these singers to be able to perform. I think there's something wonderful about having all of Colorado's GLBT courses together. And it's a great feeling of inclusivity that really makes me overjoyed. Will this piece be performed uh, again? Or is this a one-time thing? We'd love to perform it again. I need to think about how I can arrange it again. So maybe it won't be in a parking garage next time. But there might be a version two in the future. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Denver composer Nathan Hall created the choral work Mountains and Rivers. It premieres tomorrow night at the Denver Performing Arts Complex. See photos from a rehearsal at cprnews.org. Now, a correction to our Wednesday interview about the U.S. Senate race with analyst Jennifer Duffy of the Cook Political Report. In the interview, Duffy said that Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett opposes the Keystone Pipeline. Bennett supports the pipeline and has voted for it. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to my audio engineer, Michael Hughes, and my director, Stephanie Wolf. Producers Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, and Michelle P. Fulcher. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Of course, follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of CPRnews.org, then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. And join the Public Insight Network and help connect your experiences to the news. Go to cprnews.org and scroll down to share what you know. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.